from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Patricia Verge on December 10, 2018. Patricia is a writer and editor who lives in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Alberta. We discussed two books that she wrote. One is called Equals and Partners, which records her decade-long friendship with the Stony Nakoda Nation in southern Alberta. The second book she co-authored with Evelyn Loft Watts called Return to Tayendanaga, the story of Jim and Melba Loft, which tells the story of the Lofts leaving the comfort of their middle-class life to live on the Tayendanaga Reserve in Ontario. We discuss these works, and Patricia reads excerpts from both books in the interview. I started the interview by asking Patricia where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in several parts of Western Canada. I was born in Williams Lake, British Columbia, which is in the Caribou region. It's a very beautiful ranching area. My father was a district agriculturist, and I lived there until I was eight. And then we moved over to Alberta for a period of about four years. And then we moved to Golden, British Columbia, which is in the mountains, the Selkirks and the Rockies, uh, just over the border, really, from Alberta. And that's where I spent my high school years and then subsequently went on to university in Vancouver. So religious life, it's very interesting because both my mother, who is uh, from Croatian ancestry, and my father, who is from Irish ancestry, were Catholics. But I would say we were what they used to call fallen away Catholics in the sense that my mom and dad had seven children and they had to work very hard just to feed all of us. So they would send us to church if we wanted to go and they'd always support the church financially. But we really were not rigid Catholics. I never actually learned much about catechism or anything until I was one year in a Catholic school when we lived in Calgary, Alberta. So interesting question, because in my memoir, I started out with a question that I was asked in a writing workshop. And it was a writing workshop about the spiritual in writing, or the sacred in writing. And the instructor asked us, what was your first intimation of the sacred in your life? And it was a really good question because I thought, well, it wasn't when I went to Mass. It wasn't when I went, you know, had my first communion. It was in those very early days in Williams Lake. Now, there are quite a few Indigenous First Nations around Williams Lake, where I was born. And we used to live just on a hill overlooking the Stampede Grounds. 
And every year there was a big stampede, which is quite a large stampede. And a lot of the Indigenous people would come in from the various bands, the various reserves, we call them here in Canada, into Williams Lake. And they would pitch their teepees or their tents at the stampede ground. And I have a memory of standing up on the hill at our house, looking down over the stampede ground, and having that feeling of something sacred or spiritual. And I questioned myself, like, what was it that made me feel that way? And I wondered if it was just the singing that we would hear sometimes at night, the drumming, the... um, really interesting chanting that the Indigenous people would do, or if it was the ladies in their long dresses and their buckskin shoes that they would wear and so on. And there was this mixture I felt as a little girl of sadness and of happiness. After we left Williams Lake, I really never connected with Indigenous people until I became a Baha'i when I was 26 years old. But I think that was my first impression of the sacred. It was a very interesting connection when I reconnected. And I have a very strong attraction to the spirituality of Indigenous people. So, Patricia, can you describe the path that led you to the Baha'i faith? When I went to university... I took a Bachelor of Arts and I ended up doing it in French literature. But I think that my real spiritual thirst was there. I felt that I should be able to find the meaning of life at university. (laughs) And so I took all sorts of arts and literature courses and a religious studies course. And I never really found the answer. When I took the religious studies course, I studied Buddhism for my term paper, and I was still nominally a Catholic, but there were always things that I couldn't quite accept. I actually met people at university that didn't believe in God, and for a whole year I decided I didn't believe in God, and I was very miserable not believing in God. (laughs) But I had a mentor, and she was a lovely older woman that was a friend of my mother's, And I told her the struggle I was having, and I had left the church. And she said, well, couldn't you go back to it? And I said, well, Mary, there's so many things I can't accept. So she said, couldn't you go back and pick out the things you can accept? So I did that after my year of being someone that didn't believe in God. And I would go to church, and I would listen. And the thing that touched my heart was the gospel. because, And now I know that that's as close to the true words of Jesus Christ as we could have is what's recorded in the gospel. So that was my journey. And I didn't even know really that I was on a journey, but I didn't find what I was looking for. The only course that really I thought was so interesting was the history of art. Because you would notice that after a revelation from God, such as after Christianity, and especially then after the revelation of Muhammad, 
there would be great progress in arts and you'd see all these beautiful churches or you'd see these beautiful mosques. You'd see all these artifacts. And I really felt that the history of art reflected the history of people. And you could tell that this was propelled by teachings from the creator. So that was very interesting because later when I became a Baha'i, I learned that, of course, with each revelation, there is this flourishing of the arts. And then later, when things get far from the original truth, then things go more into decay. But this sort of flourishing and then sort of a decline is shown through the arts. So those were the courses I took. I didn't find, obviously, what I was looking for. So I went to Quebec after my university in Vancouver. I taught English for a year, and then I went on to Halifax, and I went into journalism there. And I met my husband, and we both wanted to travel. After being married for a year, we traveled in Europe. And we ended up at a Canadian base in Baden-Solingen, Germany, where we could find work as civilians. I got a job in the warehouse, so I was pricing things and so on. And I ended up working with a Canadian man who I found out later was a Baha'i pioneer. What do you mean by Baha'i pioneer? Oh, Baha'i pioneer. Baha'i people, people who believe in Baha'u'llah, who have gone to a place which may need some reinforcement by Baha'is, and they settle themselves, they get jobs, and they become involved in the community. And their purpose really is to serve the community and also to share Baha'u'llah's teachings with any people that may be interested. So Ray Wingett and his wife Maddie were Canadian Baha'i pioneers to a city not far from the Canadian base. So I really wasn't interested in a new religion. I mean, I was underneath, but I wasn't because in the Catholic faith, it's once a Catholic, always a Catholic. And I heard that this man belonged to a religion. And they were very gossipy in the coffee room. And they said, oh, he belongs to a weird religion. And I really didn't want to know anything about this weird religion. But his wife would come in and she was so friendly to me. And we had lots in common from our backgrounds. And so eventually they invited us to their home. And she'd made homemade cookies, which was one of the easy ways to get to my heart. And then almost without wanting to know the answer, I and almost ready to bolt if she said too much, I asked, well, what was this Baha'i faith? And I think she was very intuitive because she only said a few things. She talked about the Bab, who is the forerunner of the Baha'i faith, and Baha'u'llah, who is the founder of the Baha'i faith. You know, they were different names. I wasn't so sure. But one thing she said was, this is a religion for humanity and its maturity. And that really hit me because I wasn't feeling very mature at that stage of my life. And then the next time we met, they came to our home. And I was feeling very nationalistic being Canadian and we used to put our flags on our back on our knapsacks and so on and I was being a little bit excessive about it 
And she said, this Maddie, this high lady said, very humbly, she said, I'm very grateful to have been born in Canada, but I consider myself a citizen of the world. And I just went, (gasps) because I knew it was truth. And those two things that she said just stuck in my mind. And so later we came back to Canada. They came back to Ontario. She would write me these lovely letters. And eventually, sort of by, I'm sure not by coincidence, I met Baha'is in Halifax where we had returned to. And eventually I decided that I'd like to know, and I went to a what we call, a, Baha'is call a fireside, which is an informal meeting where we can ask any questions that we like. At that first meeting, I asked all sorts of things about Jesus, because even though I wasn't too happy with the church that I've been brought up in, I had an adherence or a love for Jesus. I asked all sorts of questions. Where did Jesus Christ belong in the Baha'i faith? What did the Baha'is feel about him? What was his station? And so on. And all my the answers I was given were all very satisfying. They gave me a book in those days. That was 1975 called Baha'u'llah and the New Era. It was a very comprehensive book, the history and teachings of the Baha'i faith. I read it in about three days, and I phoned the the people back, and I asked, how do you become a Baha'i? So within a a week, I had decided that this was truth, and I became a Baha'i within a week. But as you can see by my long story, it was a long time of a search. Now, what about your husband? Did he follow the same track? No, he came to some of the early firesides, and he has never adhered to another faith. He had an Anglican background, but he has been extremely supportive. I have had a lot of latitude to serve the Baha'i faith through various services. I've been able to write three books about Indigenous and Baha'i subjects, And he's been very, very supportive, given me the time, helped me technically with computer stuff, financially, and so on. In addition, he's come on a Baha'i pilgrimage, which is where we visit the world center of the Baha'i faith, which is in Israel, where Baha'u'llah had been exiled to from his native land of Iran. And he has come with me several times. We hope to go again before long. He has great, I believe, great respect for it. So you couldn't really ask for more support. And the Baha'i faith does not discourage marriages with people of other faiths either. It's really very inclusive. I would say that my husband demonstrates a great many Baha'i attributes such as um, lack of prejudice and a sense of justice. So I'm speaking with Patricia Verge, author of several books. Two of them we are going to cover. One is called Return to Tayendanaga, which is the story of Jim and Melba Loft, which we'll get to. But you had mentioned your memoir, which I guess is the one entitled Equals and Partners? Yes. So why don't you tell us... What was the catalyst to writing this book, Equals and Partners? 
Well, I've had a relationship with a First Nation or a Indigenous tribe called the Stony Nakoda for 38 years this year. That tribe, they're Sioux people, they're related to the Dakota and the Lakota in the Dakota region of your country. They live only about 20 minutes from the small town where I live. In the Baha'i writings, as you know, Warren, and and maybe your listeners have become aware that there's really a special promise made about the Indigenous people that when they would become enlightened with the teachings of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, they would become the great standard bearers of the faith and they would spread light to all regions. So after I became a Baha'i in Halifax, I moved to Yellowknife, which is in the Northwest Territories. And I met a lot of Indigenous people there. And then we were there four and a half years. And then we moved to this area. And through some very early Baha'i teachers, very early in my time in southern Alberta, I was able to visit the Stony Nakoda Reserve and meet Baha'is who had been Baha'i since the 50s. And then gradually over the years, I just met more and more people. I began to learn a little bit more about their culture. Some of them became involved with some Baha'i activities. I still go to their cultural celebrations like powwows and round dances and feasts and so on. So this area, the people are truly very lovely, lovely people. I guess after these 38 years, we've really become like family. So a few years ago, it took me six years to write the book. So I would say seven or eight years ago, the chairman of our National Assembly, her name is Deloria Bighorn. She is a Lakota. And she has visited here quite often and visited this reserve. And she said, Pat, you know so much about the people here. You should write the history of the Baha'i faith on this reserve. And I was a little bit reluctant because, you know, the goal in the end is for the indigenous people themselves to really take ownership of this faith. And we're not there yet. But we've made a lot of steps in sharing. We have a few young people now involved with junior youth programs and other people beginning to get training to become what we call junior youth animators. Junior youth is that age between 11 and 14, and that's a very tender age. The Baha'i community worldwide had quite a bit of success with programs for this age of youth who have a strong sense of justice, who have a sense of altruism and idealism, and who want to make a change in the world. So these programs, which the Baha'is have, are usually carried out by young people who are a little bit older than these junior youth. So they're 15, 16, 18, and so on. So at the moment, this precise moment, which is December 2018, we have a few older Stony Nakoda youth who are going to begin to get the training and they're starting to really help with these programs. But when Deloria asked me, 
I didn't know, but I started to write. And then one of the things that came to me really strongly was how really little I knew about the settlement of Canada. And what I mean by that is the initial people that came from Europe and came to this country, and then what we call the settlers who would especially come west and settle the country, and what actually happened to the Indigenous people. And I just felt it was my moral duty to research it for this book. So I spent at least a couple of years researching, and right about that time, there was a lot of attention being paid to what happened in Canada. I know it also happened in the United States, which is the residential school system. We had what we call a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which spent five years taking testimonies from, I think they took some 7,000 testimonies from survivors of residential schools. So I was able, because it happened during this time that I was researching, to go to three sessions of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and hear people testify. In addition, I looked into things like treaties that were signed. I looked into confederation when Canada became a nation. I really looked into the whole terms of of colonization. Before that, I'd never even really thought of what that meant to colonize people. So I researched a lot. I got to the point where I my chin was on the ground because like many, many Canadians, I was very ignorant of what actually had happened to people. And because of that, I tried in this book to share some of that. And I also looked into some of the history of the Stony Nakota people themselves. There's been several books written. So I put those in, but it had to be a readable book. It's not a textbook. And then I thought, how am I going to write this story? Because the story of the Stony Nakota people really needs to be written by them. That's their right to write their own story. So I realized then I had to write my story, which was my spiritual journey, which I've told you a little bit about, and then how it's been entwined with the Indigenous people for most of my Baha'i life, and then what I've learned. So hopefully it's readable. I've heard it's readable. So I write about my own life, my own struggle with coming from an alcoholic background, especially my Irish background, which relates quite a bit to Indigenous people. And then I weave in these years of not just myself, but other Baha'is meeting the Stony Nakoda, different activities we carried out over the years, especially before becoming more systematic in training people in such things as these junior youth animation. And then I have a couple of chapters which I call Investigating the Truth, Part 1 and Part 2, where I try to weave in a fairly condensed form some of this learning that I did about what happened to the Indigenous people. And my goal is really more to just encourage people, Canadians, Baha'is, to just learn. We need to become knowledgeable. 
because we have this word in Canada that we're using quite a lot, which is called reconciliation. Because for the most part, our peoples, the settler peoples of peoples that came from other countries, and the first people that were here, the indigenous people, have led really quite separate existences. And the existence of the indigenous people has been fraught with a lot of social and economic deprivation. There has been what we call intergenerational trauma from what happened in the residential schools, the abuses and so on, and being cut off from their cultures and being actually prohibited from speaking their languages and practicing their cultures and so on. And Canada itself has to come to terms with this, and we're working on it as a country. I just felt it was my moral duty to somehow tackle this, and I learned so much, much of which I couldn't put in the book. I just had to cut so much. But it was really more to encourage people to make their own learning journey, because we can't have really true reconciliation until we have truth. And I think as Baha'is, we'd also say you can't have justice. We say until you have unity. You can't have true unity without justice. And to have justice, you have to have truth. So I'm just one of many, many people who have written and talked about these issues, but I wanted to do them from a Baha'i perspective and to put some of the Baha'i principles which really come to bear on this subject. So the book really is part memoir because I felt I had to own my journey of learning and my own life. I couldn't, again, tell someone else's story. So it's part memoir and it's a little bit scholarly presentation of what I learned. So I'm speaking with Patricia Verge and we're talking about her book, Equals and Partners, which she just described as part memoir with her long relationship with the Stony Nakoda Nation in southern Alberta, Canada, as well as some of the history of the First Nation people and their interaction with the settlers that came. Um, Patricia, do you have a excerpt you could read for us yeah, from the book? Yeah, sure. What I'd like to read is a spot just really from this very early learning that I began to do. It's from the very beginning of Chapter 15, Investigating the Truth, Part 1. And it's just after I had really delved into my own background as well as coming from Irish background and Croatian. I explored the Irish because I could speak the language. I don't speak Croatian. But I saw so many similarities. There had been a lot of oppression of the Irish. So the chapter starts like this. After I had explored my cultural roots, I felt the need to know a more accurate history of Canada with respect to its Indigenous people and started this in earnest after getting back from pilgrimage in 2012, over 30 years after I had met Indigenous people as an adult. So this is a scene. I nervously sat in the circle, wondering what would happen next. Roger, an elder from the Ghana Reserve, which is also called the Blood Reserve, 
began to share his memories of being taken away from his family at the age of five to the St. Paul Anglican Residential School on the Reserve. He said, the first thing they stripped us of the clothes we were wearing, threw us in the shower and cut our hair. Most of us had braids. We all got the same short haircut. They said we might have lice. Roger continued, I heard at another residential school in Saskatchewan, they didn't explain why they were cutting everyone's hair. For one young boy, he only knew that in his culture, you cut your hair when a beloved relative dies. So he thought his mother had died. Roger was speaking during a preparatory workshop in June 2013 for the final national meeting of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which would take place in March 2014 in Edmonton, Alberta. The meeting, co-sponsored by a number of churches and by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself, took place in Indus, a tiny hamlet southeast of Calgary. I attended with my friend Allison Healy at the request of the Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of Calgary. Each child got a number, said Roger. I imagine scenes eerily familiar to the photos we had seen at the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem the year before. That night, and for many more nights, I woke in the dark to hear children crying, Mama and Dada, Roger went on. The food for the children was of extremely poor quality, while at the same time the teachers and clergy ate well. We saw the roast they were eating and the butter, only the best, said one survivor. Because of the bad nutrition, staff gave children cod liver oil. One survivor remembered the staff used the same spoon to give the medicine to all the kids. At a time when tuberculosis was rampant in the schools, this showed unconscionable negligence. Of all the things I heard, this made me the angriest. After Roger spoke, he asked us to go around the circle and share one new thing we had learned about residential schools. The most painful moment came when Roger's wife broke down and left the circle, saying she couldn't participate. We learned that only two weeks before, their 24-year-old youngest son died. I couldn't imagine how much courage it took for her to come to the meeting. The young man had committed suicide. No doubt lingered in my heart that this loss had a direct connection to the intergenerational trauma of the residential schools. On the way home, I drove to our daughter's house in Calgary. I had been looking after our grandson, Cedar, a toddler, a couple of days a week. I felt drained, but I desperately wanted to see him. How wrenching it would be to see Cedar taken away and put in a school where I wouldn't see him for months, even years, where I couldn't show him my love and affection, couldn't tell him my family stories, couldn't teach him lessons I have gleaned from life. The immensity of the loss to Indian Indigenous people over many generations boggled my mind. On the second morning, we learned more about the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in recording the stories of survivors and in educating non-Indigenous Canadians. Though gently presented, the weekend exposed the magnitude of the repercussions from this deep wound in Canadian history. 
At noon, I walked out into the sunshine. My shoulders slumped over, a weight in the pit of my stomach. I called Sarah again, that's our daughter. What's the matter? You sound awful, she asked anxiously. I tightened my grip on the phone. No one should ever have to go through what these kids went through, I muttered. I asked to see Cedar again on my way home. Allison Healy, who I was with, herself a First Nations survivor of a residential school, cried during the weekend. The churches were there and actively involved in the truth and reconciliation work. What should we be doing as Baha'i, she asked. I pledged them not to let this opportunity for awareness and education slip away. We called the secretary of the Alberta Baha'i Council and asked for a meeting for Allison and I to share what we had experienced and to make recommendations for educating the Alberta Baha'i community. We also later met with the Spiritual Assembly of Calgary. When I went back into the main hall to examine the displays about St. Paul Residential School, Roger came over to talk with me. He seemed to sense my anguish. He shared stories and answered my questions. His kindness and humility, despite his own unimaginable suffering, revived my flailing spirit and strengthened my resolve. A couple of weeks before the workshop, I dreamt that I ran away from the pain in the meeting. Roger's sensitivity helped me to stay. I committed myself to becoming an ally and friend in the healing between our peoples. I'm speaking with Patricia Verge, and she just read from her memoir called Equals and Partners, where she describes her longtime friendship and relationship with the Stony Nakoda Nation in southern Alberta, Canada, and she just read about a workshop she went to where people shared about their experiences at the residential schools and the impact that that learning had on Patricia. Patricia, you co-wrote another book with Evelyn Loft-Watts called Return to Tayendanaga, which is the story of Jim and Melba Loft. Can you tell me who Jim and Melba Loft are? Yes. Melba was a lady from the Curve Lake Reserve in Ontario, Canada. And Jim was a Mohawk whose ancestry came from Tyndinaga, but who had grown up a city Indian, as he would say. And they became the very first Indigenous Baha'is of Canada. Their story is a really wonderful story, and it, it connects a little bit with your country as well, because when they got married, they moved to Marysville, Michigan, and Jim worked in the Chrysler plant at Detroit. And... Melba also was a supervisor at Ainsworth. As many Indigenous people have done over many years, they left the reserve to find work. And they were doing very well. They had three children while they were in the States, 
They had a very nice house, a little white picket fence. Melba even had her own dressmaker. They were able to buy their kids all the things that young kids had at that time, skates and bikes and all that. Melba had always been on a, a grand spiritual search for a very long time. She had been taught to be very proud of her culture and her indigenous spirituality, but she said she'd gone to every church and she'd come away saying, is this all there is? And when they were in Marysville, she saw a notice after going to many churches and so on. She met this lovely lady named Emma. They became very good friends. At one point, Emma, I believe, was investigating the Baha'i faith, and Emma became a Baha'i at one point. Melba saw a notice, and she went to a Baha'i meeting, and she really liked it because she said it was in a circle, and she was asked to come in. There was no priesthood or anything, and they all were able to share and to say prayers and to read Baha'i writings, which are writings that are revealed by the central figures of the Baha'i faith, such as Baha'u'llah and the Bab. She said she felt like she was an armchair for a Baha'i for a long time. She went to the meetings. The children went to children's classes. She was very comfortable. They were living a very comfortable life. And and Jim wasn't very interested. So when she had Baha'i material, she would just put it in a drawer in the house. But then one day, I think she had a book about the Prophet Muhammad. And he was kind of jibing her about it. But she said, Jim, the Prophet Muhammad was a messenger from God. And so he started to read into it. And then he started reading some of the other things. Some of the times he'd show up, he'd come to the meetings. One time, apparently, he was a little tipsy from drinking and he fell off a chair. Evelyn, their daughter, said she wanted to put that story in because she said nobody judged him. They just were so happy that Jim came to the meeting. They never, you know, made any judgment or anything. And that kind of an atmosphere, you know, was melting his heart. So he kept reading. And then one day he just decided that he believed it. And he was very, very excited about it. And then he wrote to the guardian of the Baha'i faith, who was at the time the head of the Baha'i faith, the guardian was the great-grandson of the founder of the Baha'i faith, and he had been appointed as the center of the Baha'i faith after his grandfather, Abdu'l-Baha, who was the center of the faith after Baha'u'llah had died. So Shoghi Effendi was the head of the faith, and Jim wanted to write to him and ask how they should serve. And he had in his mind they should go back to his reserve where he'd actually never lived but there was property in the family and Melba wasn't too keen because she'd grown up on a reserve and she knew it was tough and she wouldn't help him write the letter so uh, he went to Emma I think he went to Emma and she helped him write the letter so he sent this letter to the guardian he got a lovely letter back. Would you like to hear that letter? Yes, please. 
Okay, this letter was dated October 14th, 1948, and it was signed by the wife of Shoghi Fendi, Ruhia Karnum, who Baha'is uh, know as his wife, and she was also a Canadian, which was very interesting. She married the guardian of the faith, and she would often be his secretary, and she would write on his behalf. So she said, Mr. Jim Loth, dear Baha'i brother, our beloved guardian was overjoyed to receive your letter of September 2nd and is happy to extend to you a sincere and warm welcome into the service of our glorious faith. Over and over again, Abdul Baha mentioned the great importance of teaching the original inhabitants of America. And now that various tribes of the Indians of the Western Hemisphere are gradually coming to be represented in the Baha'i faith through some of their members accepting Baha'u'llah, his hopes are being fulfilled. This marks an important step forward, not only in the evolution of our faith itself, but also in the history of the Indian peoples. For through the universal teachings of our faith, they will come to not only be loved as brothers by their compatriots of European origin, but also develop the potentialities God has endowed them with and thus contribute their share to world progress and world unity. He would greatly welcome your returning to your own tribe and giving them this great message you and your dear wife have accepted. He advises you to consult with the Canadian National Baha'i Assembly as part of their teaching plan is to carry our faith to the Indians in Canada and they can help and advise you. He assures you he will pray for your success in teaching your own people for your happiness and for your protection. She signs it and then appended is in the writing of Shulki Effendi himself. Dear co-worker, your most welcome letter rejoiced my heart, and I hasten to assure you of a most hearty welcome into the Baha'i fold, as well as of my loving and fervent prayers for any and every effort you may exert for the promotion of the faith and of your fellow Indians and their acceptance of its verities. May the beloved bless, protect, and sustain you always, and aid you to Realize your heart's cherished desire, your true brother, Shogi. I'd like to tell you a bit more of the story because Jim, on receiving this beautiful letter, was just ecstatic. He immediately wanted to move up to Tyndanaga. And Melba, of course, wasn't so keen, and, and there were a few tears cried in the household because she knew it would be tough but she did agree that they would go because she knew that Jim really wanted to so he put the house up for sale right away and that letter was sent in October they were gone by January 1949 now what this represented was a huge change in their lifestyle because they had all these wonderful things I think they had a piano and they had you know electric appliances and so on so they were all bundled up you know and got ready and they were were loaded onto a moving truck so one of their sons 
drove with the movers up in the middle of the winter up to the reserve. And when they got to the property, there was this little cinder brick house with a leaking roof and a pot-bellied wood stove. They walked up to the door, opened the door, and raccoons came running out. No electricity, no running water. And the movers said, oh my gosh, what on earth are your parents thinking to come up? The parents hadn't left Marysville yet. So to keep them calmed down, they unloaded everything. And then Snook, his name was, his nickname was Snook, took them over to some relatives and gave them some soup and sort of got them on their way. So when Melba and Jim and the other son and daughter came up, they stayed with some relatives for a few days and then they finally went out there. So for those first years, they you know, would go down and pump water. Eventually they got hydro. They would have, you know, buckets under the dripping tin roof and so on. But they reached out and Jim got some work in the nearby town. Besides doing his work at Chrysler, he did body work on cars. So he got work and he met some people. They were non-Indigenous and they came out for what we call firesides in this little cabin out there. Firesides are informal meetings where Baha'is share. I think I've mentioned this already. And the lady said it was like she felt the atmosphere was so beautiful sitting around this pot stove. She said she felt it was like in the early days of Christianity where the early Christians would be teaching the first believers. So they lived in that place for a long time. Eventually, they sold off a lot of that fine furniture and those appliances. And they ran out of money. And they wrote back to the Guardian and asking what they should do because they were really out of money. The Guardian wrote back and said he didn't feel they should impoverish themselves. But if some way could be found to stay with their own people, it would be wonderful. So for a very short time, they went back. They actually lived in Windsor, just over the border from Detroit. Jim went back to Chrysler for a few months. Something happened where his paycheck wasn't ready at one point, and he got upset, and they said, we're moving back. So after a few months, they moved back to the reserve. And Melba said, I'm never moving again if I have to live with the chickens. In Belleville, a town not very far from Tandanega, Roger White, who's well known as a really famous Baha'i poet and who was a fairly new Baha'i, he had come out to visit the lofts. It's so touching. Their real dedication to the ideals of the oneness of humanity and serving their people. And he'd come to some of their meetings in this little cabin. And Roger was a justice of the peace. And Indians, as they were called in those days, could not get loans because they usually didn't own their land or they didn't have the collateral. So Jim asked Roger if he would co-sign a loan so that he could start a business on the reserve. And Roger said yes. So the business was the first business to be started on that reserve, and it was a body shop. 
down the hill from this little cabin. It was a successful business, and he was able to pay Roger back, and they this is how they made their living. So they finally were able to stay. Jim died before Melba did. He died in the early 70s. Melba lived till the mid-80s. She never left the reserve. They built a bigger house down the hill later from that little cinderbrick cabin. But they did not leave the reserve. And, of course, over the years, through a lot of persistence and love, some of the Indigenous people became Baha'is. In 1979, Jim was passed away by that time, but Melba was able to be part of the first, we've mentioned this word already in the letter, so I'll explain it, spiritual assembly of Tyndanaga. Because Baha'is do not have clergy, these are elected nine-member councils that consult and decide on the affairs of the community. So the first assembly was formed where there were nine or more Baha'is in Ontine Denega in 1979. I'm speaking with Patricia Verge, and we're talking about her book, which is the story of Jim and Melba Loft, who were First Nation people and who happened to be the first Baha'is of First Nation peoples. Of Canada, yes. Of Canada. Patricia, do you have an excerpt you'd like to read? I would, and this one is written by Evelyn. I wanted to just mention that Evelyn spent years collecting interviews. She went back to Marysville. She met many people, and she spent years researching her parents' story. And I met her after I had done another book uh, called Angus about Indigenous people, and we became friends. And then she had a bypass surgery, and her health deteriorated really a lot. So she asked me to finish the story. And she had written smaller, short versions of it, so I went through all her materials. So in this book, I used as much of her own writing as I could because she was unable to. Even the first draft that we got, by this time she was actually in a care home. But beautifully, two of her children, Bob Watts and Susan Seawick, helped a great deal with the few drafts that we did, added, got more materials, added more materials. And so when we finally finished it, we all signed off on it. We were very, everyone was happy with it. So this piece I want to read to you is what I used in the prologue from her. An integral part of the story herself, Evelyn began gathering materials and memories at an early age. After she had married and moved with her husband, Bob, to a house in the town of Coburg, about 54 miles from Tyendinaga Reserve, the subject of writing the story came up again. That day, she and her father, Jim, were painting the window in the dining room of the newly purchased home. She remembered clearly what he said. My dad told me that day some things he said he had never told anyone about. His early childhood, growing up as an Indian in Canada, was bitter memories to him. He said that day, and I recall so clearly, Evie, you said that you're going to write our story, and I want you to put this in. 
So he told me what had been on his mind probably for years and years. He felt that I should know this. I'm so glad he cared so much to share his memories. Today I'm more settled and have, I hope, a better understanding of what my parents have done for all Native people and others in Canada and the world. I'm just going to interject here for a moment as Pat and say that in another part of the book we describe Jim had experienced racism in his youth. So I'm going on now for this is her writing again. My parents loved their people, the Native people, so much. But they didn't just talk about their great love to realize their dream of the brotherhood of all mankind and justice and unity for all the downtrodden peoples. Actions speak louder than words. That is what was said in our home. I remember as a child those words. My parents would say, anyone can talk, but without action and deeds, what good is it? It is better to keep quiet. So I will tell the story like a grandmother does, for this generation and for the next generation and so on. This is a special time in my life, too, as I share this incredible story with you. My beloved mother and father were proud they were Indians. My mother would say, never be ashamed of who you are. If you do, then you're ashamed of me. How could you ever be ashamed? I'm sorry, how could we ever be ashamed? Our parents showed their love and caring to us, not with just words. We knew we were loved, and so were the cousins and others that came to live with us for a while. Mom and Dad had a very strong belief in unity and diversity. This is a story for all people, and perhaps especially for the Indigenous people throughout the world. As I write and tell their story, I will be thinking of a circle. I will see and remember the times of other talking circles. In the circle, I will be sharing and telling the children, youth, and adults the story of Jim and Melba Loft. Patricia, thank you so much for sharing your work, mm-hmm. both Equals and Partners, and Return to Tayendanega, the story Beautiful. of Jim and Melba Loft. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Patricia Burge, writer and editor who lives in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, Canada. I'll post her two books, Equals and Partners, and Return to Tayendanaga, on my website, abahaiperspective.com, where you can also find this interview and other interviews. You can also find this interview on my YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for a Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.